This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Daisy and Werewolves. Knights versus Snails. Restricted Territories. And the Alien Over Time. Join us in welcoming our new anchor sponsor, Phoenix, the illustrious Swedish gaming magazine, soon to crowdfund its Best of Phoenix anthology in English. You can tell it's illustrious because among their contributors is that gentleman scholar, Kenneth Height. And you can tell it's Phoenix because it's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Best of Phoenix celebrates its first glorious decade as a magazine devoted to role-playing games and gamer-friendly reviews. Peek deep into the heart of Swedish gaming. Thrill to the comic strip exploits of Burger Barbarian by Ake Rosinius. It includes Gladiators Gone X-Files, Miltonian Majesty, and at least one complete game, the Baroque Leviathan, Belly of the Beast. Plus, such Hytian flights as Once Upon a Time in the North, Werewolves of Dacia, Demons of Memory, and the City of the Golden Vampires. Watch out for the Best of Phoenix campaign on Indiegogo in February 2014. That's Phoenix, F-E-N-I-X, from my pals Tove and Anders Gilbring. The howling of wolves and the clashing of swords tells us that we are in an extremely primitive, dare I say, ancient iteration of the gaming hut, where the game perhaps is to avoid being eaten by lycanthropes. And that is to say that we're going to take a look at a campaign frame designed by Ken for Phoenix Magazine of the aforementioned advertisement. Uh, This is a campaign that he developed for them and which will appear in the Best of Phoenix anthology that they'll be crowdfunding shortly. So I thought we would, rather than just have Ken sort of pre-see his piece, sort of go in behind the scenes and talk about how you create a cool new setting for a role-playing game. And that setting in this instance is Werewolves of Dacia. So Ken, can you talk about how you first came up with the kernel of this idea and made you want to expand it into a campaign setting for a game? Basically, this was one of those... uh sorts of uh, deadlines are their own inspiration. The uh, Phoenix guys had said that um, this issue was going to be a Lord of the Rings themed issue or a sort of a heroic fantasy themed issue, ideally with Lord of the Rings focuses. And I was, you know, pretty much out of useful or intelligent things to say about the Lord of the Rings. But I thought, all right, let's take what was one of my sort of standard go-tos when I'm writing these things. Let's take some historical element and translate uh, The Lord of the Rings into a historical setting. And at the time that I had, was doing this, I had been enamored of a thing online, which I suppose we can maybe put in the show notes, that maps Middle-earth onto Europe, right? I don't know if you've seen this. It's like uh, it takes 11,000 BC Europe or thereabouts, and it maps Middle-earth onto it. And uh, Mordor, of course, with its ring of mountains surrounding it, maps almost perfectly onto Dacia or onto Romania, basically, that um, that upper uh, chunk of Romania above the, the Danube, the, basically Transylvania. And once I'm thinking, okay, if Mordor is Transylvania, um, 
maybe the orcs are vampires. And I thought, well, that was a little boring. But um, having looked into Dacian mythology before, I thought that there was something that could possibly be done with uh, the notion that the Dacians, that, as they believed, were descended from wolves. And so I thought, I, c- I think that we can maybe have something with uh, werewolves of Dacia. And that was basically the the opener. And then to justify that and make it sort of Lord of the Ringsy, I knew that I had to have Rome fall instead of survive. And it was more interesting and more Lord of the Ringsy if it fell to orcs as opposed to, you know, internal dissension or anything like that. So where do I orcs come from? Now that I know I'm doing classical Rome, I know that the orcs come from Orcus, uh, the devourer. So they are uh, devouring uh, species. They're people who worship Orcus, people who are have the hand of the undead on them. And then I thought, well, all right, instead of going towards them as zombies per se, why not have a uh, situation in which people close enough to Dacia become werewolves, but at unpredictable times. So they're constantly turning into werewolves and killing each other. And that, it, it, that gives you a lovely post-urban desolate landscape all around Mordor. And then I came up with, right around then, a fairly ornate, and I think <laughs> uh, maybe even too ornate uh, notion that as you go farther and farther away from Dacia, the full moon lasts shorter and shorter in the sky so that you're, uh, but comes around more and more often. So for example, the full moon lasts only eight hours in Thessalonica, but it recurs every three days in Pergamum. It uh, lasts for an hour, but recurs every eight hours, uh, every three day, you know, thrice a day, uh, a fifth of the city is trying to kill the rest of the city. Uh, in Athens, the full moons uh, last six minutes, but it comes back every hour. So as you get farther away from Dacia, the period of the moon uh, increases. Uh, and so you, you know, if you assume that everyone with a genetic propensity or, a, or wolfish thoughts in them, or that has ever been bitten by any of the ways that you can become a werewolf, they'll turn werewolves at once. Basically civilization falls apart and everyone becomes packs of murderous cannibals, uh, roaming the, uh, the, 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 the countryside slaughtering people. And I figured the reason that this happens is because the um, uh, Zalmoxis, the sort of tutelary god of the Dacians, um, has uh, kidnapped the moon and is uh, in the course of uh, raping the moon while he impatiently waits for his mother, uh, Luprica, the wolf goddess, to bring back uh, a ring that she has forged to be basically his wedding ring to the moon. And that would be the ring. And so the idea being that during a lunar eclipse... Uh, Luprica takes the ring of the sunlight that's visible around the moon and takes it off to have it take, uh, made into a ring, but uh, Zalmoxis becomes impatient and uh, attacks uh, the moon, thus freezing the moon in place over uh, Dacia and causing the sort of um, Sorani curse of the land that uh, happens. And, and again, that's because I, I need to displace Rome, so the slain brother in the uh, Romulus and Remus story uh, is taken underground by Luprica and put in Dacia to become the, the father of the werewolf tribes, because in this sort of alternate fantastic history, the surviving brother doesn't hold games and honor his brother's death. He just sort of pretends that it you know, was an accident and tries to cover it up. And that's sort of the, the primal sin that, uh, that creates the, um, the ongoing uh, curse of the land. So to, to back up to the point of your first creation, this is something that uh, we as 
professional role-playing game writers, but the GM working at home is not going to encounter, which is that you are given a brief by somebody else. In this case, it's the guys at Phoenix saying, hey, we got a Lord of the Rings issue. What do you got for me? And you're then uh, doing the thing that we've heard you do uh, before on the show, which is you're basically nerd-troping. You're taking two familiar, disparate elements and mashing them together and making it all fit and all be coherent. How would you recommend to the uh, campaign frame designer at home, how can they sort of, if they want to as an exercise to try and come up with something cool and new that they wouldn't ordinarily go to in creating their own world, how would you advise them to find the two disparate elements that they then want to fuse together to create this thing that is both new and familiar at the same time? Well, I think that, I mean, in a way, you do get a little bit of a brief from your players because they'll say something like, we want to play something with space pirates, or we want to play Traveler, or we want to play, um, uh, you know, Earth Dawn. I don't know what they want to say, what they, what the, what they want to play, but they'll have their own opinion, and that will be the equivalent of Phoenix Magazine saying to me, this should have something to do with Lord of the Rings. And then you take from that a element that doesn't seem to immediately fit it, but that you're really, really into, that you can, you know, dredge a lot of thematic juice out of. And so in this case, I took sort of two elements. I took werewolves and I took um, uh, uh, Roman history, uh, classical history, and I blended those with Lord of the Rings. But you could, for example, if the players have just come back from seeing the, the Hobbit movies and are unaccountably excited, they could say, <laughs> um, uh, uh, we want to play a Middle-earth type game. And then you would say, okay, I'm really into pirates. You know, how can we, how can we make this a, a piratey game? How, how can we tie um, uh, something piratical? And you can either just set it in the land of Umbar where there are Corsairs, or you can say, I'm going to take a specific pirate story. Maybe I'm going to take the, the stories of, of the, of the train robbers or of some other sort of, you know, maybe you're just going to do treasure Island or kidnapped or some favorite pirate story. And you're just going to put it into the land of uh, middle earth, but you're going to try and focus it up. So instead of middle earth, maybe being a giant continent with the seacoast down at the bottom, you flip it. And so you say, all right, the, the outline of middle earth is the same, but that is the outline of a big, Caribbean style sea and uh, the sea of Nernan now becomes an island and the sea of uh, Rhiannon becomes an island and all of these things that we know of all become underwater things so instead of Mirkwood you've got a big sargasso area where there are evil uh, spider uh, water spiders or water uh, crustacean monsters that live and you can sort of flip uh, Lord of the Rings on its back that way and make it an aquatic setting instead of a land-based setting maybe that's what you think Right. So this could be as simple a matter if you want uh, your players to sort of give you a, a jolt for something that feels like yours, but is uh, a bunch of other things that they're interested in, is to have them give you both elements, or in this case, you've got three elements. So you could have people write down on a little uh, slip of paper. I was going to say index cards, but I found out from a gaming blog this week that uh, there are no index cards in uh, lots of different places of the world, including uh, Italy, because during the time when 
Italy would have otherwise developed index cards, Mussolini was in charge, discouraging index cards along with other, all of his <laughs> other sins. So, so you'd think that the beneficent occupying allies would have brought index cards from the vast index card mines of North America. It's as if they failed to organize Italy before they left. <laughs> well, you know, not the first time. Right. Well, organizing Italy turned out to be the problem, so... <laughs> I, so I see why they didn't introduce index cards. So, um, anyway, uh, you get a little slip of paper and uh, give them to all the players and have them uh, write uh, different things on them, whether they're uh, genres or periods or even, in this case, a Lord of the Rings, a property that they're already interested in. And that gives you your meets pitch so that you, uh, you know, draw the one thing that's like, oh, Pirates meets uh, Lord of the Rings or Glorantha meets cyberpunk or whatever those two things are they then get you started on finding the connections and developing them together and in your case you're drawing on your uh, vast historical and mythological knowledge to add a whole different set of flavors to the existing structure of lord of the rings so the next step in any campaign frame is to create a core activity something that the players are doing in your world. And I guess in your instance here, that's sort of supplied to you by Lord of the Rings, which uses the classic quest structure. So you therefore assume that you're going to be a group of people uh, questing to either uh, get or get rid of a ring, which gives you already, you've got your core activity is mm -hmm. your, your journeying and your relating to this object. So you've got a classic quest structure and a classic MacGuffin. Yeah, the, basically the, you know, ideally one of the things that they gave you is going to have your core activity in it. So if they've said, you know, like you say, Lord of the Rings is going to involve at the very least a quest for a ring or fighting orcs or trying to clear out some uh, part of the world that's fallen into desuetude that you're trying to restore for the new age, um, something Lord of the Ringsy is going to happen. Similarly, if they've said, uh, what they really like is a uh, traveler, then you can sort of drill down and say, all right, do you like the part where you go from place to place selling cargoes of liftwood, or do you like the part where you get into space battles, or do you like the part where you're conniving at the fringes of an, imperi of an imperial star empire? And you sort of try and picture, pick, figure out what aspect of that classic uh, 1950s, 1960s SF they want to play, and then you can, you know, usually pull that, you know, back into history, since most of that was based on Earth history in the first place, or you can, you know, uh, swap it around by saying that the, uh, the the space travel in this case is magical instead of, uh, you know, atomic or whatever else that you are doing to, to nerd trope an already nerded setting. Now, the article, it's like a 4,000 word piece, so the yeah. point of it is to create sort of a sense of wonder and fun in the reader and sort of serve as a bit of inspiration, I guess, perhaps if you want to go and perform a similar exercise yourself. And I guess most of your pieces for Phoenix, though not all of them, are kind of in that vein of here's a really way out uh, cool campaign frame to inspire you, basically. Um, so it presents a lot of the uh, mythological narrative up front. How would you, uh, if you needed to expand this into a game supplement, we're also providing more guidance for the GM in terms of how they're going to present all of that information to the players. How do you uh, get that big mythic narrative from the page into the play space? 
Well, first of all, um, uh, you, I mean, you like I mentioned, I didn't put any headers in there, so you break it up. You break it up. Uh, in this case, if you're trying to present a setting, you break it up geographically. So instead of the way that I've sort of um, uh, listed things out, there would be a little area that would just talk about the area of the Alons, the the tribe that's ridden into the. Th- the, the period where the werewolf moon actually lasts its proper three days, and they have golden rings that they wear, torque rings that have been uh, made by Amazon magic, and uh, bracelets, so they can uh, ride around and be immune to the werewolf curse. And, and that's sort of my writers of Rohan, but I would put the description of the Alons and their golden rings into just a little section so that if you're playing the, an Alon, you don't need to know anything about the rest of the world. You you can ignore it or not ignore it, and there, it, depending on how uh, focused you want to be, you, there might be a what the Alons believe about the moon uh, section, or there might be a, um, uh, you know, what do the Alons want as a people, or what does an individual Alon, what might they want, and maybe a, a line that would be, what takes an Alon out of Alania? What makes them go somewhere else in the world? You know, and that would give your character motivations for not just riding around and around in a big circle on the European grasslands, but doing something perhaps gameable uh, and useful. And right, and the, the quest structure that you've uh, got here by borrowing it from Tolkien allows you to break up that exposition into chunks where presumably if each of the different members of the Fellowship is from a different culture, you need to give each of those players enough to go on from the jump in order to play their characters and have the cool details and so forth. So if they play your Hobbit analog, they need to know a little bit about that from the beginning. But for everybody else, they don't need to know about that until they enter the territory of the kind of sort of Hobbits. And then you can then provide that. You could almost set this information as a route map of the potential journey and have the map. And this is what they're, this is the culture they're going to encounter this week. And this is the conflict that's going to tell you about that culture and the conflict and the way that that culture is going to interact with their wanting or having the ring, for example. Yeah. The, um, the notion of uh, being from different cultures or different species, I think it's, you want to, um, Provide those elements in as digestible a format as you can, so that no one has to memorize the uh, you know the, the the pattern of the of the moon rising, ex- except the GM and the GM will have a convenient table somewhere in the back or a, a but you know when you list a, a geography there will be a, a line how long is the moon uh, full how often is the moon full and that just simplifies it down from trying to explain it all in prose right and that gives you each of your adventures too because. Each area you enter, if it has a different moon phase, that has a different effect on that area that's actually even more important than the culture in the past. Mm -hmm. But, you know, if you're in Rome where, you know, it turns into murder every eight hours, that has a much bigger effect on that area and gives you the problem that you need to solve in moving through Rome is how do you get through there when it's absolute mayhem all the time, whereas some other area has a different moon phase and that problem caused by that moon phase is a different problem and therefore a different adventure. Yeah. Um, and again, uh, depending on how, uh, how uh, much you want to signpost it, you can sort of draw parallels and in, within the discussion and you can say uh, the land of the Averni in Gaul is similar to Sauron, uh, to Saruman's land being 
surrounded by um uh, uh by not particularly shadowed areas but being a potential area from which evil can break out or you can just say all of that without saying the word saruman and people who twig to the the, the point will go, oh, right, like Saruman, and you never have to say Saruman at all. Right, because the article itself takes a while tipping its hat mm-hmm. as to what it's doing. Perhaps it's not so inobvious in the context of a whole issue dedicated to the Lord of the Rings. <laughs> right, and, but, and, the, and the, the, I don't know if you've seen the art, but the art's got a, one of the little Colbitlon with a giant ring floating towards it. So it's, it's more obvious uh, once you've looked at the art, I think. Right. But part of the discovery, uh, the, the fun part of that, and, and part of why as part of the nerd troping exercise at the beginning, you might not want to reveal exactly which of the six different suggestions you took and melded together is it is fun to have that dawning recognition of, Oh, we're, this is what we're doing. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a, a different decision, whether you want to, allow the players the fun of recognition versus taking advantage of their ability to wire into all of those tropes and images from from the get-go. And that's essentially sort of a, a matter of taste and maybe even something that you do to contrast whatever you did last time. Yeah, the, uh, the, the discovery in play is one of the things that I enjoy doing as a GM, certainly, that it, the players are going along and it's like, oh my God, this, you're, you're doing this, you've, um, uh, you've pulled this out again. And uh, often it's uh, it, it's something that they've previously discovered in play because obviously I've got players who've been playing with me for years and years now. But uh, the trick is, you know, it's like uh, whenever you make chocolate chip cookies, the, the trick is not to make them new, it's to make them good. Right. And speaking of juxtapositions of elements, I think our next segment uh, consists of such a thing. And so uh, let's uh, head out of the gaming hut and into the question dome. Join us in composing a wily kenning or two in praise of sponsor Sand and Steam Productions and their game, War of Metal and Bone, whose longships bear down on Kickstarter, even as we speak. Built with Fate Core, War of Metal and Bone lets you tell the stories of brave warriors, Jarls, bone-bonded giants, uh, not to be confused with, although possibly not indistinct from bone-headed giants, and their defense of their holdfasts. In addition to the awesomeness that is Fate Core, War of Metal and Bone adds some unique features. Bone Bonded or Seer, Thrall or Jarl, War of Metal and Bone lets everyone play side by side using the same excellent fate mechanics. Create your own holdfast and add to the world. Every campaign begins with the creation of your own unique holdfast. Every session will see you adding to the map you've made, uh, presumably making it progressively more Viking y. This is your world, see how it changes. Form bonds with your party members, celebrate your warrior clan, and honor your history with your own sacred item. The war with the dwarves and their constructs rages across Midgard. What role will you play? It's time once again to ask Ken and Robin. So let's ask Ken and Robin. Derek Upham asks Ken and Robin, Why were medieval knights always fighting snails? What's the truth they don't want us to know? Good question, Derek. Right. What One might not immediately associate medieval knights and fierce combat with snails, but it turns out that this is a very common visual motif in the illustrations and uh, illustrational marginalia of medieval manuscripts. Or all, if you, apparently, if you work in that field, you're all the time running across pictures of knights 
fighting snails. And sometimes the knight is fighting a knight-sized snail that looks like a uh, somewhat dangerous opponent as, as mollusks go. Sometimes they're fighting an actual teeny tiny snail. Sometimes the teeny tiny snail is sort of rearing up and achieving a height it would not otherwise achieve. And it's something that we don't actually really know what the deal is with that. I guess the most likely theory is that this is a monkish joke, that in the medieval sense of humor, it's just uh, funny to uh, juxtapose the prodigious armor of the dangerous, lofty medieval knight with the natural army or armor of the lowly snail. And so that's just funny to put those two things together. It's a category error, which is the root of a lot of comedy, where the a knight is farm fighting another armored opponent, but that other armored opponent is uh, just a snail man. Uh, there's another uh, theory uh, by a medievalist named uh, Lisa Spangenberg, which is that the snail is a symbol of the inevitability of death. And she establishes this by <laughs> reference to Psalm 58, in which the lowly slime trail of the snail is mentioned uh, um, as being among a number of things that uh, God's divine wrath might uh, reduce you to in your uh, insufferable pride. Um, you can tell from the way that I frame that, that I think that's uh, something of a stretch. <laughs> it's a little bit of a push. I, I think you're right that it's mostly a monastic joke, because you have to remember the guys who are drawing these little drawings are the kid brothers of people who became knights. Right? It's always your second son that goes into the church or your third son that goes into the church. So every single one of these has got a brother who's a knight. And if you are the guy who does not get an awesome sword and does not get armor because of the order you were born in, there is probably nothing more fun than to draw your brother running away from a snail. So that is the compelling explanation, dare I say it, the mundane explanation. But surely there must be something esoteric and mystical uh, below this? D uh, does the snail figure in uh, any occult or mythological tradition that would allow us to unlock the real truth of why uh, knights have to fight snails across the pages of medieval manuscripts? Well, I think that to begin with, when you look at the snails, uh, there's a couple of uh, uh, things. The medievals themselves use the snail as a, not a symbol for, but a reminder of cowardice. The notion that uh, someone who's so easily frightened that they are afraid of a snail is a, you know, it was a big medieval bit. And again, because of the parallel between an armored knight and an armored snail. So the notion that the snails represent the uh, typically cowardly uh, northern Italians uh, or Lombards <laughs> is perhaps the first step here because the Lombards are not the ethnic Lombards necessarily. What they are is the people from the northern Italian cities who have money. So this is a note, uh, a notion that uh, the snails would represent the international bankers of their day. So, whereas we would now represent them as an octopus, the octopus-deprived medievals would uh, represent them as a snail. So, the snail in itself represents a conspiracy of uh, uh, creepy urban folk. And as a conspiracy trope also, I'm reminded, of course, of the uh, snail shell that uh, Daedalus used as the model of the labyrinth. When Daedalus is building the labyrinth, he's given uh, the order by Minos to uh, send gold in one end of the, of the shell, and sometimes it's a conch shell, but uh, we're already talking about snails, so let's keep going, um, the, uh, into one end and out the other without uh, ever um, breaking the shell. And of course, this is seen as horribly impossible, and he you know, uses an ant and blah, blah, blah. But the notion that the snail shell 
is the model of the labyrinth, I think, is an interesting parallel to our notion that the octopus is the model of the conspiracy. Um, uh, snails also uh, indicate um, uh, the, the deadly sin of sloth, so the notion that the snails are one of the seven deadlies is kind of an interesting notion, that uh, if you've got a world in which there are seven conspiracies or seven uh, demonic forces working against you, that the snails are one of them, is, I think, a, uh, a useful uh, piece of information that you can carry away, that uh, we're implying that these... Uh, that the, the, this uh, snail invasion is, is uh, put on us by uh, whichever demon is the Lord of Sloth in your uh, cosmology. Um, and so that could be sort of a fun enemy f- for your characters to fight in a fantasy world is the uh, sort of the, the forces that spread sort of lassitude and uh, convince you to stay home and not go and get, get go on adventures and uh, a land that is sort of suddenly overrun by snails and therefore the economy is slowly grinding to a halt and people begin to go from their uh, sort of uh, uh, Weiss and Hickman heroism into sliding into a Vancean uh, lack of interest in doing anything. Uh, And so that can uh, sort of be an interesting sort of uh, subtle upending of the whole idea of, you know, the encroaching evil. So here the encroaching evil is not that the vegetation is going corrupt and there are orcs rampaging all over the place, but just that uh, there's all these snails everywhere and things are getting quieter and slower and people are getting uh, dumber and only interested in, uh, they're not interested in good food anymore. They're only interested in eating weird vegetable paste. And so your uh, trick then is to go and find the the source of this uh, slothful evil, and the more you go into their spiral-shaped snail-shell sort of labyrinth and fight all of these gooey, slow-moving things that uh, you yourself begin to suffer a kind of a fatigue and begin to be tempted into this sort of a mollusk life, and uh, you need to uh, get in and, and destroy whatever it is at the, the heart of this uh, before you too become a uh, thing content to move around very, very slowly on your own slime trail. Yeah, another possibility is um, the snail as symbol of uh, madness, as the symbol of the vortex, like it is in Uzumaki, the great uh, uh, Japanese horror film and manga, um, in which the snail represents the spiraling into uh, into obsession. And so the snail could be, uh, in this case, the snails that the knights are fighting, the knights with their uh, uh, great uh, cruciform swords and crosses on their shields indicating uh, good old right angles going against the spiraling vortex of uh, insanity. And you can make that a reflection of the spiders and snakes uh, a mythology of Fritz Leiber, where uh, chess and uh, backgammon are the two great enemy uh, uh, forces, or you can uh, take a notion that, uh, more straightforwardly, that the knights are fighting uh, the snail demons, which are drawing you into self-obsession or into uh, some sort of mania that the snail uh, demon can use. In, jo- in Japanese, uh, the snail demon is the Sazai Oni, uh, which happens if a snail turns 30 or 100 years old. So when you find those snails, make sure you eat them or kill them instead of letting them turn into demons. And uh, that might be another uh, possibility that they represent, just as they do in the film, the encroaching of a sort of Lovecraftian madness. And uh, once you start thinking about these uh, 
slimy things moving around that change the way that we think, we also hit the science fiction trope of the mind parasite. And so it could be that the knights are uh, fighting these snails because they know that they're brain snails and that they're going to leap inside their uh, ears or in the ears of their feudal lords and uh, take over from within in a sort of an invasion of the body snatchers sort of way. And we've seen that uh, imagery uh, come up and ag again and again so that you could have that uh, double edge where the uh, characters are interacting with these things and reacting to them as if they are uh, demons spreading uh, sin, but that the players begin to increasingly realize that these are, in fact, alien beings who are uh, replicating their consciousness and trying to take over the, the world by uh, moving from this comparatively uh, lowly, not particularly versatile physical form and to take over and merge with humanity. And so your goal then is the goal, as in any good body snatcher tale, is to somehow stop the spread of this alien menace that starts to look increasingly, increasingly like uh, the neighbors all around you. Yeah, the... Um, uh, um the, the the notion of uh, the snail as a body snatcher is kind of, I think it's kind of an interesting parallel, and it's not immediately snail-like, but you can sort of use the, the the tropes and the and the and the and the symbols, and you can say that the maybe the medieval artists don't quite know what they're drawing, but if you think of the hermit crab, right, that takes over the other guy's shell, that maybe that that snail is sort of a symbol of a hermit crab-like alien because the slugs remember, are uh, going to go in your ears and uh, take over your brain like in Star Trek. So I think that there's a strong possibility to nerd trope the uh, medieval trope, if you will, and uh, not just move it out into the bi into other biological questions, but also into sort of a another science fictional question. The answer, Derek, then, is that the knights uh, were fighting an alien invasion that I guess they must have successfully overcome or we ourselves are now the snail people. But I, I think it's probably A. Yeah, I'd, I'd say 80% A. 80% A. So uh, you now uh, know why the medieval knights fought the snails. And next time you go out uh, in the garden in the uh, spring or summer, uh, you want to check those snails and uh, make sure that A, they're not uh, turning 30 or 100, or B, that they don't have little diodes on them. <laughs> Sponsor this week is Atlas Games and their beloved time-honored storytelling card game, Once Upon a Time. As you might have been able to guess from that pressy, in Once Upon a Time, players tell a story together using cards. Each player has a number of cards with fairy tale elements on them. Like a dragon, a stepmother, a journey, a palace. Each player also has one ending card. Like, and so his wound was healed, but his heart remained forever broken. To play Once Upon a Time, one player starts telling a story and laying down their element cards. For example, once upon a time, a brave knight set out on a grand adventure. And then you play your knight card. But other players can get control of the story. When a new player takes over, they continue where the last player left off. Weaving in their own element cards. The goal is to play all your elements and then play your ending cards so the story makes 
sense. Great for role players. Great for kids who are usually better at it than adults. Great for fiction writers to sharpen storytelling, if not editing, skills. Pyramid Magazine called it one of the best games of the millennium. Games Magazine called it the best family card game of the year. Designed by, among others, James Wallace of Baron Munchausen and Nobilis fame. The third edition of Once Upon a Time is out now, with a bunch of expansions and more on the way. But Atlas Games has a problem. They still have copies of the second edition left. For a limited time, Atlas is blowing out the still great second edition at a liquidation rate that includes shipping and handling? Check it out on the web at atlas-games.com slash Ken and Robin. So, what are the key things to remember? Once Upon a Time is a card game that's great for role-playing and storytellers. Check. It's an award-winning game created by a towering genius of gaming. Check. There's a limited time chance to check it out at a liquidation pricing. Check. And all the details are at atlas-games.com slash Ken and Robin. Indeed they are at atlas-games.com slash Ken and Robin. The riffling of maps, the whirring of globes, and the brief querulous noise you make when you realize you've forgotten what cadastral means tell us <laughs> that we've entered the cartography hut. And in the cartography hut, we have entered an awesome Cold War edition of the cartography hut. Uh, Robin, you wanted to call our attention to something that uh, Dwight Eisenhower did to keep America safe from Soviet communists. So why don't you uh, start us off with your thoughts on the no-go zones for Soviet travelers? Right. So a while back, Slate dug up a map from, I think, 55, which showed the areas of the United States where Soviet visitors could not go. Um, initially, all of the U.S. was in a no-go area for uh, Soviets at the height of the Cold War and uh, the Soviet Union, vice versa, for Americans. But the uh, Russians opened things up a bit. And in a spirit of uh, uh, reciprocity or wanting to seem like there was reciprocity, certain areas of the country were opened up, and you can see the areas on the map. It's not immediately apparent from the map uh, why everything is there. Obviously, you're going to want to keep your enemy agents away from military installations and anything they might want to photograph and send back home for non-touristy reasons. Uh, there's also the suggestion that they uh, wanted to uh, keep them uh, out of the uh, south at the height of Jim Crow, which was a social issue that the uh, American Communist Party and also the uh, wider uh, world uh, Soviet wanted to uh, exploit. Um, so the question here, I guess, is not so much how you would use this in a game. I don't know if you'd really want to uh, play a game of uh, Soviet agents who can only go to the less interesting parts of America, but <laughs> you can take the idea of a map that shows you where you're not allowed to go and use that as the inspiration for a game in almost any uh, genre. So in a science fiction context, for example, you could be allowed, say, as the problem-solving lasers in Ash and Stars to go to a planet to investigate a case, but you're told by the local authorities that here's a map of where you're not allowed to go. And in that context, you'd be seeing the map in your little view visor things that you carry around with you as these sort of futuristic, uh, your tether, your equivalent of uh, Google Glass in that setting. And so you could know right away when you're entering an area that you're not allowed to enter. And you could even see on a sort of a visual display the invisible border that you're not allowed to cross. And in uh, some tech settings, there you would really have to go a long way to successfully cross 
into the borderland and into the restricted zone, which of course is presumably where you want to go, where the interesting things are. What I'm interested by on this map is the notion that although, for example, um, uh, uh, most of Tennessee is closed off because it's where the TVA is and they don't want them taking pictures of our advanced hydroelectric technology, I guess, but they can still go to Knoxville or Nashville. And so the notion that there's a little area inside the uh, no-go area that's still a go area is interesting to me because uh, Chicago, for example, is a place where the Soviets were allowed to go, although northern Illinois is not, and I suppose that's because of Fort Sheridan and the Glenview Naval Air Station, or we're just being jerks. So they're allowed to go wherever, wherever there are great blues clubs and music. Exactly. They're, uh, but no, they're not because they're not allowed to go to Memphis. Oh. So it's not. So they're allowed to go to Nashville. and but not uh, Memphis, yeah. Right. So they can have uh, Southside Chicago blues, but they can't have B.B. King-style Memphis blues. They can't learn of the, the of the Delta blues because it would give them too much power. Right. Uh, what about New Orleans? Are they uh, New Orleans is, is, uh, is I, I can't tell if New Orleans is, uh, I think New Orleans isn't allowed to go. It, it, it's on the map and it looks like it's an open circle. So I think you're allowed to go to New Orleans. But the, um, but the notion that, you know, you're in New Orleans, you're a Soviet agent in New Orleans or in Chicago and... Your goal is not so much find the zone you can't go into. You know you're in the middle of the zone you can't go into, but you've gotten into Chicago or New Orleans on some Soviet pretext. And how do you get out into the out in the countryside around? How do you get into the into the suburbs or or towards the area that you're not allowed to go in? And what if your reason for going there is not uh, as it would be, you know, to go uh, uh, suborn things at uh, Fort Sheridan, but you actually have some other kind of mission that's out there in uh, the countryside? that is not a, a preferred target. So you're still in an area you're not allowed to be in, but it's not a heightened surveillance type situation the way it would be if you were going to a um, uh, a missile base or something. I think that that's kind of an interesting middle space for play because you're, you've already justified to the players anything that uh, the, the, the men in black that the government does is going to be justified, but they may not be looking. So... It, 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 I think it makes it a more interesting uh, set of decisions than, oh, well, yeah, we just can't get into the missile base. That's impossible. It's also interesting to play with the idea that, A, these boundaries are not just areas on a map, but have some force to them. So that in a fantasy world, for example, the places you're not allowed to go are places where your skin begins to bubble and you begin to have terrible nightmares and become susceptible to your worst flaws and the uh, people around you can see all of the magical items and tattoos that you're carrying on your body. So it's a place that you can enter briefly, but only want to be in for a short amount of time. Or a science fiction world, you could have a sort of a psionic fields that keep people from uh, certain backgrounds and classes from even wanting to enter those areas. And you could then explore the social ramifications of psionic segregation. I think the notion of uh, when you get into the, the, the kingdom of the elves or whatever, and they say, all right, we're going to put you under the guest curse. And that means that you can go to any of the areas here in uh, elf land that you're allowed to go. But if you ever set foot in an area you're not allowed to go, you're going to be operating at some kind of uh, negative, um, you know, a, a penalty. And either it could be like you're talking about, you've got an itching and, and boils and uh, people can see all your magic. Or maybe the elves think that you'll die if you go in there. But you know, no, I have an anti-curse medallion and I can use it for, you know, just a little bit of time. Or maybe the elves just have a thing where they, they put it on you. And if you set foot into 
uh, North Dakota, uh, you're going to be, you know, suddenly glowing blue and um, uh, announcing in at the top of some magic mouth's lungs, uh, you know, intruder, intruder, come get me. And so you have to go in, you know, literally where no one can see you and hope that you're able to do it, that there's some sort of ongoing penalty. In science fiction world, there could be, you know, you could have been injected with some kind of uh, a nanobot, right? And there's a GPS in it that tells you, um, oh, nope, you've, you've walked into the no-go zone, and now your, um, uh, you know, your, your oxygen processing is shut down, and you've got 10 minutes to get back out before you just die there in the, in the no-go zone. Or you suddenly are, you've, you've triggered like a, a retroviral allergy, and suddenly the very soil or air of the, of the territory you're not supposed to be in is causing you a horrific discomfort or possible death. In some instances, you could use the idea of finding the map that tells you where it's safe to be and where it's not, where these invisible boundary lines between the uh, safe places and the dangerous places could become the object, so that rather than starting out with a map where you know you're not allowed to be and you have to figure out how to sneak into those areas, there's an area that you want to explore, and you want to stay on the safe path, on the yellow brick road, so to speak, but it's not visible to you until you go and steal the map, because otherwise, if you wander into this invisible lane of force while you're in Elfland, it's not that you will be killed, but you will then start to become an elf, or you'll be obligated to marry the Goblin Queen's daughter, which is uh, has certain advantages, but overall is a net negative given the other things you want to do. So that... Uh, and then a further idea would be that you are surveying in a future where some force in the past set up these boundary lines, whether they are science fictional, uh, psionic boundary lines or magical ley lines, and you no longer know why they were there. Uh, you no longer know what the civilization that put them there was, what the social conflict was that led them to create these boundaries. But you want to now settle this area. You want to find where the safe zones are. And ideally you want to find the batteries or the mechanism or whatever it is that created these boundaries in order to then take it all offline and make the whole place safe for settlement. And that could give you the basis of sort of an exploration surveying campaign. It may be that the monsters can only exist within the no-go boundaries of the world. And on the other side of the boundary, uh, the rules of uh, regular physics apply, and on the other side of the boundary, the square cube law is nullified and giant praying mantises can charge all over the place. And you want to get that out of there so that you can occupy all of these areas uh, and not have to uh, fear giant antlions coming along and slicing your head off. Yeah, well, you, sh you should fear that regardless, I think. Well, if there, if there are no antlions to do that, then the fear is significantly diminished. Yeah, although just it only takes the one. I think <laughs> um, looking at this specific map again, um, I, I think it's, it's fun to say, all right, let's say that there's some thing that uh, is different about the green zone and the, and the white zone. And maybe the Soviets had some sort of devilish Soviet plan, right, that they um, uh, sent people into all the areas that they could go. Uh, and they were all infected. That's with a materialistic devilish plan to you, sir. But the fiends are still materialistic fiends. They're not demonic, um, but they're uh, but they're all infected with zombie virus, or they're all infected with some kind of um, you know uh, maybe a a biological uh, contaminant that makes the praying mantises grow to enormous size. It being the mid fifties when things could happen like that, and suddenly the no go zones are the safe zones, 
And the question is, how long do they stay safe, right? How long does that thin strip along the northern coast of Michigan stay a safe zone? And, you know, you're, you know, maybe you're in Duluth or you're in Sault Ste. Marie and you've got to figure out how to get to a more safe area. Or how about these areas where, once again, the Soviets could go into? So you're in rural South Carolina, but you know that the Soviets were allowed in Savannah. And so it's only a matter of time before whatever the outbreak is that's uh, taken out. Uh, most of Georgia and South Carolina is coming for you because it's going to come out of Savannah as well. Right. So we've got the giant callback then where the no-go areas are the ones in which the uh, mind-controlling snails have successfully sort of taken over. Right. And it's the mind-controlling snails who don't want the Soviets to go there and find out what's going on in time. And so that you are start off thinking that you're going there to uh, commit espionage against uh the democratic West, but then discover that you are actually the good guys and you've got uh, much more of a uh, crisis to deal with than uh, mere capitalism. <laughs> Although, as we mentioned previously, if the enormous snails symbolize uh, Italian capitalism, maybe you can get a twofer. There you go. Uh, well, I think we've uh, explored that map in uh, all sorts of different directions. We went where we weren't supposed to go, and that means we're being hustled out toward our final hut of the show. And that hut, which we can identify from the alien black dog with the red saucer eyes staring at us from the window and the debris of a recent frog fall at our feet, is the Elliptony Hut, that fuzzy boundary between uh, the uh, occult, folk belief, science fiction, the modern day. And uh, this is where we survey the world of ufology, among other things. And this week I thought we would talk about different conceptions of the alien over time. We now have the gray alien uh, cemented uh, pretty powerfully as our uh, default thing that we're imagining in the craft that we're imagining flying overhead. Uh, earlier than that, we had uh, sort of the the contactee phase of the late 40s and, and 50s, and that's sort of your uh, space brother, your alien Jesus, if it were. Uh, but I thought this week we would go back in time and try and figure out what our popular conception of the alien was uh, before those images developed. So, Ken, where where do we find the first point where we're beginning to think about alien visitors, about moon men, about Martians, rather than uh, demons and fairies? Well, I think that we start thinking about moon men and Martians uh, in sort of pop culture as opposed to the occasional thing that... Uh, um, Lucretius or someone wrote, uh, the, the, the place we begin thinking about it is actually before we start having the UFO contact as a big, uh, element. And that is when you start having descriptions of the people in the moon that have moved down from the elite narratives of, uh, Lucretius or even of, of Cyrano. And you get down into things like, uh, Gulliver's travels, or you get down into things like, um, uh, Edgar Allan Poe's hoaxes of about uh, the 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 men seen on the moon or in the sun. Uh, the uh, and these guys are usually depicted as sort of conventional figures with one signifier, so like bat wings or something. That they're not um, anything different from people. And a lot of the UFO sightings, once you start having unidentified flying objects, part of it is because 
people are not necessarily convinced that they're coming from other worlds. So the, the, um, the airship sightings in the 1890s are often, the, the aliens are bearded men with Midwestern accents because they're, you know, trying to get you to come with them to fight, uh, the Spanish in Cuba. But a lot of the other times, you're also seeing human inhabitants of these, of these craft. The alien inhabitants of the craft often have more sort of animalistic, uh, qualities. So you're seeing, uh, dog people, or you're seeing a, a large, uh, bat in, in, in one case in, uh, the 1930s, or you're seeing a, uh, a sort of a mermaid or a, or a, or a humanoid type, uh, aquatic humanoid type being. And these, I think, are sort of just a general stirring up of the, of, of I guess, what you call the archetypal sphere or whatever it is, where we've got an, uh, the same thing that's been going on, uh, encounters with ultra-terrestrial forces, encounters with the outside, but we know that they're not demons anymore, but we're not sure what they are. And I think that that's what makes the sort of pre-1940, uh, pre-1950 sort of alien encounters more fresh and interesting in a lot of ways, not least because they're less familiar, but also because, you know, the script hasn't reset itself. So you can have all manner of stories about um, uh, a, um, a humanoid creature with long uh, whiskers and one eye, or you can have stories about a, uh, like a, a little four-foot reptilian uh, goblin uh, who may or may not be green or he may or not, may not be purple, depending on, on which uh, version of the sightings you're reading about. There are uh, people who are, you know, seeing things that look more like pirates or more like um, foreigners in a way, as opposed to the sort of Nordic space Christ being the idealized self. This would be the externalized other. So maybe in uh, an era just a hundred years or 200 years ago, they would have known, oh, we're seeing devils. That's what that is. But instead, it's just a mysterious, uh, swarthy stranger with a beard and um, uh, strange clothing. Now, we associate the more recent waves of aliens with particular behaviors. The uh, gray is uh, here to probe us. Uh, the uh, reptoid is uh, here to uh, take over, uh, perhaps from, uh, from within. And the uh, Spath brothers are there to warn us about pollution and nuclear weapons and to uh, change our ways lest we be destroyed. What were the activities of these uh, sort of various proto-aliens? What would they be uh, seen to be doing? Well, a lot of them would uh, warn you. Uh, the, 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 the airship guys often uh, would warn you about uh, the dangers of the Spanish or the dangers of uh, some other foreign foe in the same way that the Space Christ aliens or the Nordics would warn you about communism. So these were uh, xenophobic aliens. They, yeah, they're, they're, well, what they are is that they've been you know, looking at your planet and in their dispassionate uh, observational <laughs> way, they have recognized that what you believe is actually true. Uh, the number of people who have aliens who come down and actually tell them that they're wrong and they need to change their life uh, in some way that they weren't already inclined to is apparently uh, less likely. Yeah, so everyone an alien tells to go around wearing a, a funny hat and a sparkly muumuu really wants a sparkly muumuu and a funny hat. Yeah, that's the, that the, they've been looking for an excuse to do that. Uh, the um uh, a lot of the aliens uh they tend to just sort of show up and stand around looking confused until they are attacked or run away or disappear. I I think that that's more in, in, akin to what you'd have as a ghost sighting uh a lot of times or you'd have the sort of uh close encounter of the second kind where you see the alien but you don't contact the alien. I think that the um, 
uh, a lot of the aliens uh, sometimes just attack you in the same way that you see narratives of uh, Bigfoot attacks. A lot of these are sort of night siege moments where um, you're in your cabin in the woods or you're out in you know the middle of nowhere and you note that there are aliens around you and you feel an overwhelming fear. And this, again, is a very, very common thing that happened you know, with demon sightings and with vampire sightings back in the 18th century, and then it happened again with alien sightings, and it still happens with alien sightings because that's another thing that people will say uh, is that the notion of being watched by these creatures or by these presences inculcated them a sense of paranoid fear, and I think that that's another uh, thing that the uh, various aliens... But because we don't have a single race, we don't have, okay, we have enough sightings of dogmen that we can develop a, a standard operating procedure of dogmen. Because what the reason the alien, the gray aliens want to probe you, of course, is because that's what Whitley Stryber said that they wanted to do. And everyone who saw gray aliens after that had watched uh, Steven Spielberg and read Whitley Stryber and knew in the pop, in the culture, what gray aliens are supposed to do. Right. And because it tracks to the night hag phenomenon with yeah. that you are going to a hypnotist to explain and you want to make sure you go to the, Right, hypnotist, uh, when you want your night hag phenomenon explained, or ideally not go to a hypnotist. Yeah, if, if, if you could do so. You know, you see a lot of uh, these these guys are, have just got wings and just act like they're normal people. They have sort of normal activities. Uh, in one of the uh, my favorite airship cases, the uh, alien gets out and it asks to borrow a wrench and a cup of um, uh, of, of distilled water. <laughs> and I think that that's that's one of my favorite alien encounters ever. Ever is is just. Uh, he's, he's, they know he's not human. They can tell he's not from around these parts, but there's no sort of explicit tell. So right. you get the notion that they looked at his face and they, they the proportions were wrong or something, but all he wants is a wrench and a cup of distilled water and he's going to fix his airship and, and get on out of here. And I, I like that. Well, and, and just like, the, uh, uh, Max and AOL are compatible with the alien ship in Independence Day, uh, obviously he uses a standard, uh, a wrench. Yeah, right. Although it might've been an adjustable wrench. There you go. Um, so, is there a, a particular sort of proto-alien encounter, uh, other than that one, that you find particularly uh, uh, piquant or suggestive, or that you kind of wish had been adopted as a uh, template for aliens, other than the uh, space Christs and the greys? Well, I think that every one of these aliens is of its time, and I don't... What I object to is, is not so much um, uh, the space Christs or the greys specifically. I think that they're both delightful. I sort of object to the notion of an alien encounter template at all, because what it does is it takes this vastly multiform experience of people looking at their own brain chemistry and drops it down into one set of imagination, and usually the imagination, like I say, of, of Whitley Stryber or of Steven Spielberg. And I'd prefer, I, I prefer the sort of, you know, anything can happen alien encounters that you got. And again, even bef even up until, say, uh, 1980 or, or thereabouts, only 20% of the aliens that people saw in the 60s, 70s were the greys. All the rest were, were other kind of crazy things. There was Nordic aliens. Nordic aliens are still being seen, you know, this year, uh, or maybe not this year, but certainly have been seen in the last couple of years. So the, the space Christ didn't go away, just stopped being the default alien for your, for your encounters. And I, I object more to the concept of a default than I wish that we'd swap something out for the Nordics or for the, or for the, uh, or for the greys. So, uh, let me change the framing of that question and just say, are there particular exotic one-offs that you particularly love? I'm really fond of anything where the, uh, where the, where the alien is, uh, sort of 
obviously wandered in from another story somewhere. I, I really like mermaid sightings, especially when mermaids get out of flying spacecraft. I, I just, I think that that is more fun to me than uh, a sort of a standard alien sighting where you, um, uh, you, you, you might be able to make some sense out of it, or, or possibly conversely, where the sheer nonsensicalness of it makes it more likely to be authentic and less likely to be made up. Right. It, it seems much more ultra-terrestrial, like some weird interaction of uh, something we don't yet understand and the human mind uh, trying to put things together and, uh, as in a dreamlike state, coming up with something completely loopy. Yeah. I, I think that the um, the sort of... Um, the, the things that make the encounters more fun or more interesting to me is not so much the question of uh, what do the aliens look like, is how do they behave? What, what's the story? So things like the, Hops, the Hopkinville humanoid attack, I think is interesting because it's a night siege. It, it's a classic good story. And the, um, uh, the fact that the Hopkinsville humanoids look like, uh, you know, illustrations from first edition monster manual, maybe they're troglodytes or maybe they're kobolds. That's just, that, that's part of the fun, but it's not. So what, what's the, the when and, and what and why on that incident? Okay. This is in uh, Hopkinsville, Kentucky in uh, 1955. Um, and the, uh, the, the, basically the, the shtick is that there's uh, little green men, except that they're goblin-y looking little green men. They're not Martian-y looking little green men, which again shows, uh, that, uh, either people in Hopkinsville, Kentucky didn't get out to the theater very often, or that, uh, they have, um, uh, some other source for their, uh, little green man alien, uh, sensations. But these, uh, things just sort of show up. And there's a, a good number of witnesses. Uh, there's um, uh, people who, who saw the, the, the creatures out wandering around, or there's people who were in the um, uh, uh, farmhouse. There was two different families at the farmhouse, seven people. Uh, all of them talk about these, um, uh, these three-foot-tall, pointy-eared, uh, scaly uh, monsters. And they are um, floating around, and they pop into high places, and they um, uh, move as though they're going through the water. And they're just sort of creepy and horrible, and they would just sort of pop up at the windows and frighten people. And lights would be in the sky. There's a, an ongoing feeling of, of terror. And it's sort of a, a long, um, uh, you know, case. It's not one of these where we saw it one time, uh, you know, for 40 minutes. This is an all-night uh, monster siege, which I think is is just interesting in a lot of senses. And then I like the uh, I, I like the fact that they're kobolds and not uh, boring old. Uh, normal aliens. I think that that's great fun. The, um, the fact that you've got this whole family makes it a better story, I think, in the sense that um, it's not just two guys out wandering around and uh, confabulating something, that this is some sort of an experience that, at the very least, you know, infects the whole family with a belief system. I, I think that that's an interesting notion. And I just, you know, I like the idea of alien goblins that show up. And so, uh, how did the debunkers uh, deal with that story? <laughs> my, my favorite, uh, this is also one of my favorite debunkings, is that the Air Force said that there was an escaped monkey that had been painted silver. <laughs> yeah, because that, well, that, that happens a lot. <laughs> well, in Kentucky, it yes. is more common. The, the notion is more likely that it's a, a flock of great horned owls, which have creepy alien-looking heads and flit around and levitate and peek in your house if they are, if you, if they're suddenly, their, their migration pattern has been thrown off or something like that. And so I think the more, uh, the more naturalistic, although I don't know if it's a more logical explanation, is that you've got uh, a bunch of uh, meteor sightings, which has got people in the mind of UFOs, 
and then they see these great horned owls popping up at their house, and it freaks them out because their house is not normally surrounded by owls. And then their panic creates its own panic. And I guess that's sort of the... I always knew owls were alien beings. The, well, you know, the owls are not what they seem, as we learned in Twin Peaks. Um, but, uh, you know, it could also, of course, have been a silver-painted monkey that escaped, uh, that was released by uh, the, the Soviets uh, into uh, America to try and cause panic there. What, was this a no-go area? Uh, yeah, I think so. I think Kentucky is, or I think Kentucky is a go area. So that's where the Soviets are allowed to go. Oh, in there they're allowed to go monkeys. there and spread yeah. their silver monkeys. Yeah. Uh, well, I think we've, uh, uh, well dealt with the uh, topic of, uh, early one-off and exotic aliens and can declare another podcast done and get in our spaceship and fly away. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Phoenix. Sand and Steam Productions, Atlas Games, Dork Tower, Pro Fantasy Software, and Pelgrane Press. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Venture from your shell by clicking the donate button at kenandrobintalkaboutstuff.com. Join such illustrious patrons as Sven Anderson, R. Scott Schmidt, Daniel Stanka, and once again, Rick Neal. Exploit our reach by advertising with us. Grab the rate sheet at our site. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time, and once again, we will talk about stuff.